0: Uh, Welcome to this Migration Policy Institute webinar, COVID-19, the Withdrawal Agreement and Citizens' Rights, No Time to Waste. Uh, I'm Megan Benton. I'm the Research Director for MPI's International Work and for MPI Europe. Um, And as I think you heard, I'm starting with some housekeeping notes. Uh, Lisa Dixon's online to um, answer any questions you have about difficulties connecting. Uh, She's events at migrationpolicy.org or you can call 202-266-1929. Um, questions about audience participation, um, we don't have a voice Q&A today uh, for those of you on the line, but we do have a and a function on um, on WebEx, uh, so you can type questions into the Q&A or into the chat box and I'll pose them to the presenters, or you can also email events at migrationpolicy.org, or even tweet if you fancy it, migration, uh, at migrationpolicy or hashtag MPI discuss. While you are uh, online, we have a ton of research on our website uh, on Brexit and citizens' rights, um, the most recent of which, um, if someone could uh, skip the slide, is called Brexit on the Backburner, Citizens' Rights and the Implementation of the Withdrawal Agreement um, in a Pandemic. Um, The recording of today's webinar is going to be available later at migrationpolicy.org forward slash events. Um, and I just wanted to introduce our speakers now. Um, we're going to start by showcasing two uh, new pieces of research. First, our own Aliyah Ahab. will draw from her recent paper with Monica Andreescu that I just mentioned, which is on the intersection of Brexit and the pandemic. Um, and she's going to talk today about implications for resident status, as health and economic issues, and specific groups um, at risk right now. Aliyah is an associate policy analyst at MTI Europe where she works mainly on integration, free movement, and refugee reception. Uh, second, we'll turn to Marina Fernanda Doreno. She is senior researcher at the Migration Observatory at the University of Oxford, which I'm sure you all know is the UK's leading uh, impartial data and evidence-driven migration shop. She's a quant sociologist by training uh, with a PhD from Pompeo Fabra. University in Barcelona. She's going to talk today about EU Nationals in the UK and her paper Unsettled Status on how the Settled Status Application System in the UK is working. Then we're going to have a really terrific lineup of government representatives to share their progress um, on implementation, implementing, excuse me, the citizens rights piece of the withdrawal agreement um, and to discuss really how COVID-19 has upended their plans. So first we'll turn to Andy Heath. He is uh, Deputy Director for Citizens' Rights in the UK Foreign and Commonwealth Office. I just saw Andy when I was reading your bio that used to be head of UK political at the UK representative to the EU in Brussels. So you're a former Brussels insider who knows more than just the issues but probably where to get a good street. And uh, then we have Anton Sebastian. He is the CEO for Identity Malta, which is a designated government agency in Malta responsible for identity management and implementation. And then we have uh, not one, but two representatives from the Dutch government, um, which I think reflects the complexity of this issue, that there are always multiple people working across this topic uh, across government. Uh, We have Betty Cepeda, as she is Brexit project lead for the Immigration and Naturalization Service, where she's helping create the new residence permit system. And then Joram van Meckelberg is a policy officer for the EU UK Relations Task Force in the Ministry of Foreign Affairs, where he coordinates um, all citizens' rights issues, including implementation of the withdrawal agreement, readiness preparations, and the future relationship. And then finally, Nastasia Fuxer is legal and policy officer for Union Citizenship Rights and Free Movement in the Directorate General for Justice and Consumers Consum- Consum- in the European Commission her main file there is the implementation of the withdrawal agreement and residence rights. So wonderful lineup. I'm gonna be brief with any introductory remarks since we have um, a full schedule today, uh, but just to set the scene, uh, I was thinking about how both the COVID pandemic and Brexit can be described as grey swan events. So improbable, but fairly predictable events that have had a huge fallout. And today we're going to talk about what happens when two great ones collide. So 2020 was supposed to be a year of transition, ideally a smooth transition from the UK's membership of the EU to the, the future terms of its relationship. But the pandemic of course has made, made negotiations more difficult and it's complicated one of the top priorities which was on the 2020 Brexit to-do list, which is the mass regularization in effect of several millions of people, both EU nationals in the UK and UK nationals in the EU to make sure that these current residents can stay on broadly the same terms. So as you all know very well, according to the withdrawal agreement, there's a transition period up till the end of December and a grace period up until the end of June 2021, during which eligible citizens can get their residence status. This was already a tight timeline member states already had considerable discretion on the type of system to introduce, including the type of registration system, whether it required any additional checks of eligibility, how it would work in practice, uh, timelines. Um, So today we're asking how COVID-19 is affecting the implementation of the citizen's rights portion of the withdrawal agreement, how it's affecting planning processes of countries trying to put meat on what works right. Skeletal plans, how it's affecting communication and outreach, especially with vulnerable populations who are less connected or less digitally proficient, or just um, not aware of the steps they need to take to protect um, their rights. And this, of course, uh, has been a topic of, of high drama in recent days. We've seen votes in the UK House of Lords and votes um, in, the, in the House of Commons over giving EU nationals physical proof of their settled status instead of just a digital record, and then over allowing Brits who want to return to the UK with non-British partners um, to be exempt from minimum earning restrictions. These are both long-standing issues um, that weren't agreed yesterday. But <laughs> we want today's discussion to take us away from politics and to focus on the granular details of the challenges that we're facing, uh, which groups they could affect, The concrete plans, contingency plans, uh, being fleshed out by different member states and the innovation and outreach we're seeing from from both governments and and grassroots initiatives. So how can we use this shrinking window of time to minimize chaos, protect the vulnerable and produce, develop post-Brexit systems that can also withstand what might be an extended period of of social distancing. So I'm going to start by turning to Alia. Brilliant. What does the overall picture look like, and what challenges the pandemic exacerbated or created in these?
1: Thank you, Megan. And I think uh, you know, you talked about great ones. It's almost uh, to use another analogy, the the perfect storm of of these different things being the the already potentially loss of legal status for UK nationals and for EU nationals, uh, compounded by this health crisis and. Um, Economic disruption. So, what our research set out to do was really to examine how policymakers could pandemic proof their implementation plans against the second wave, or we might already be in the second wave. So, now against a a second and third wave of COVID 19. Um, We spoke to policymakers in the UK and several member states, the Commission, as well as civil society organizations on the ground providing support to EU, EU nationals and UK nationals. And the things that we found in terms of the impact on citizens, in particular, is that Brexit was already taking a a huge toll and the pandemic has made things worse in many ways. So, Brexit was already taking a toll on the mental health of those affected. And now the pandemic has compounded that with financial difficulties and also making people more isolated from their family and support network because of the travel restrictions and mandatory quarantine. As far as the health challenges are concerned, UK nationals and EU nationals, are still entitled to health health access as normal, but in some countries, the population that is more at risk, it it varies. So, for example, in Spain, which has the largest population of UK nationals, they also have an age profile that is more at risk of the pandemic, being older people, uh, retirees. There's also the potential risk for recent arrivals. those trying to beat the ban by getting in in these uh, upcoming weeks and, and months, that they might be, have difficulties registering for healthcare, where offices are operating at reduced capacity, or where there are existing backlogs because of lockdowns. And, and in some countries, such as in Italy, there is differential access to healthcare based on EU status. So, this could be a major challenge. And I can even share an anecdote quickly in, in Belgium of someone trying to get their status and you know, going to the commune website, which is only in French or Dutch. They didn't understand, so they went in person to the commune only to be turned away because they didn't have an appointment. And of course, to make an appointment, you have to be able to navigate the website. So, some people are being caught in this kind of catch 22 as uh, a shortage in offline options in, in light of the pandemic. So that's a bit of the health context, but the economic context is equally as challenging. And in fact, we might even be in the calm before the storm right now. There, across Europe, over you know 40 million people were assigned up to government backed uh, furlough schemes in, in the height of the crisis in April. And since we've had the partial reopening, partial reshutting down in many European countries, it's unclear what the exact economic toll will be once the death settles and that government support comes to an end. But particularly for people who are in irregular contracts or who are self employed, they might struggle to meet these eligibility criteria for support. Or for people who are in informal work, or even those who have been commuting back and forth. So, uh, you know, frontier workers who no longer meet the, the criteria of moving across an EU border once per week, um, even for non frontier workers who might have chosen to work from home in a different member state, they could be skirting the limits of their social security uh, allowance in their um, host member states. And the 3 million in the UK brought attention to the, the fact that there are some EU nationals in the UK who have been awarded pre-settled status, but still don't qualify for universal credit, which has a slightly more stringent burden of proof uh, in that you need to demonstrate that the work was genuine and effective so, on top of being you know, frustrating status holders, it actually points to a bigger question, not just in the UK, but across the board on whether the full spectrum of citizens' rights um, are being protected but under the withdrawal agreement and not just the immediate and urgent focus on, on residency that we have now. And who's going to monitor these things to make sure that those rights are being protected.
0: Beyond these
1: two uh, health, and economic crises, turning back to how this impacts residency and the pandemic has added a complicating factor to a situation that already left some groups potentially in precarious situations. So, as I alluded to, um, some people are no longer able to meet the criteria for the EU free movement directive. Um, and um, some people haven't been meeting it all this time and have been existing in a sort of tolerated irregularity. But now that the, the withdrawal agreement is forcing them to come to light, they're realizing that they're unable to maintain residency in their home country. And one example of this, uh, an important example of this is in France, which, you know, historically has not had any kind of registration system for EU nationals. But now, UK nationals are being forced to prove that they are in fact legally resident and France has a constituted system, or in other words, an application system. And so it is actually quite critical that there is to prove this in time. Um, some research carried out by an organization there called France Right, which is a, a part of the, the British in Europe, found that a quarter of respondents were anxious about not meeting the legal requirements due to having a small income or not being able to prove self sufficiency or even about receiving benefits from the French government. And though there is clearer guidance in France that, um, you are able to accept uh, these furlough payments without compromising your ability to maintain status. There hasn't been clear instruction on that everywhere in the EU. Um, Another issue that we came across was that for EU and UK nationals who are looking to become permanent residents or to naturalize in their country of residence, the pandemic throws up a whole new set of issues regarding the allowed annual and cumulative periods of action. So in many states, you have to be legally, you know, have to be physically present in the territory for at least six months out of every calendar year. But for some people, they may be trapped or they may have been trapped for long periods of time that they weren't anticipating due to the pandemic, or they may currently be working outside of their home countries, to be closer to friends, or or, or anywhere else, without being aware of this requirement, which will eventually come back and limit their access to status. Um, when we were doing our research, we came across several different categories, specific categories of people at risk. Um, and what we found was that there's still huge uncertainties over the actual number of EU and UK nationals, and especially their family members, which limits the ability to make accurate predictions and to then design schemes that will target them. But the civil society organizations on the ground definitely pointed to those with long-term medical conditions at being significant risk. Um, also, those who don't speak the language, those without valid biometric IDs, uh, and those who don't already possess the necessary residence requirements to live in the country. Um, if I have a, a little bit of time later, I think just to to expand a bit on what we saw from the member state side uh, was that basically an equal number of member states, and you know, as well as the UK, have decided to go for a declaratory or constitutive system. Um, but in practice, some of these uh, distinctions are a bit blurry and what we found is that some countries who had they have declaratory systems were in fact still imposing timelines and deadlines. Um, we also found that implementation is the exception and not the rule. And we're lucky to have these exceptions on the call today to talk about what they've been doing. But for most countries, they have not drafted or passed or started to implement the relevant legislation which really raises the question of whether we're gonna have enough time to kick these operations into gear, but before it's too late, and then what will happen if a second and third wave forces closures and and backlogs. And we also don't know uh, what will happen when people fail to meet those registration timelines. Um, There hasn't been clear guidance um, on Extending the grace period or what the requirements would be in order to extend the grace period. For example, what kind of data is going to be collected to monitor progress or to estimate whether the target population has been reached. Uh, and what kind of 2nd chance uh, systems will exist. And maybe a last trend that we noticed was just that some registration system will be localized. Uh, I think most of the people on the call today a centralized system. But in cases where it is localized, it has very important ramifications on the processing time and on the procedures, um, and could end up, you know, leading to lots of discrepancies in terms of how post brexit systems are implemented. And I'll stop there, but there's lots more to say based on what we found in our report.
0: Thank you so much for drawing uh, such a rich picture of the potential for anxiety that was really difficult. Time right now and also um, the unintended consequences and some of the catch 22s that are emerging at this time. I was also thinking with your, with your anecdote about how the pandemic really puts all of its eggs in one basket. So all of a sudden there's this huge pressure on online communication being the main place that people are getting um, their information and you know, this breakdown of face to face services and office closures is, has such an impact. Um, and then I hope we can come back to your uh, point about the blurry lines between constitutive and declaratory status. I think that the devil is really in the details there and um, it would be great to hear what others think um, on that on that too. So I'm going to turn next to Mourinha from the Migration Observatory uh, to discuss her work on EU Nationals in the UK. Mourinha, what's working and what isn't working uh, about the UK settled Status Scheme?
2: And who's who's most vulnerable right now? Uh, hello. Hi. So uh well just to remind you, this uh, my talk today will be mainly based on the report that we published uh some weeks ago. It's about the youth settlement scheme, and particularly we focus on the groups that we think are at risk of not being to 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 secure a status, either pre-settled or particularly settled status. So as uh, Lydia mentioned before, the EU settlement scheme is a major migration immigration program uh, that aims at registering all EU citizens and their family members who are currently residents in the UK. One of the main challenges of this program or any uh, immigration programs whatsoever is to make sure that everybody who is eligible applies actually to the scheme. This, in this case, obviously there are multiple factors that explain the participation of of people in this type of programs, but that relate both to the characteristics of applicants, whether they are in a less or more vulnerable situation, they follow the news so they are aware that they need to apply, and also characteristics of of the program itself. In this case, probably for the majority of the EU citizens, the EU system scheme will be relatively easy and they will apply without many problems. But obviously, there are some groups that, for different reasons, they might struggle to apply. We think that, particularly in this uh, unexpected situation generated by the by the pandemic and the the current economic crisis, some of the challenges that certain groups face might have been amplified, as as mentioned earlier in this case for example organizations that support applicants uh, in their application process. Many of them have cancelled their face-to-face activities and they are now only offering online or telephone help. This might be a problem for people who are socially vulnerable or who don't own a mobile or don't have uh, internet or uh, access or digital skills whatsoever. Also one of the main challenges is that because of the economic crisis and and the current pandemic uh, the media attention have moved away from the use of the scheme and the need uh, for all EU citizens to apply to these schemes. So, this also might prove challenging for many organizations because it might difficult their outreach strategy and, particularly, of raising awareness about the need of applying among mal- disadvantaged or, or socially vulnerable groups of the population. And also, another issue that is particularly relevant of people. Uh, Particularly for people who have pre-settled status, which is a less secure status compared to the, the settled permanent resident status, it is that because of the pandemic some of them might have uh, go back went back to the country of origin, and because of that, particularly if they do that after January uh, 2021, they might break uh, their continuous residence requirement and they actually might lose their eligibility for um, gaining uh, permanent settlement or permanent residence in the future. So that that's particularly a problem. Uh, In our report, we try to systematize uh, and identify the factors that put particular people more at risk of not applying to the scheme. Also, this includes not only people who don't apply to the scheme, but also people who might fail in the future uh, in the coming years to upgrade their status from pre-settled, which is the less secure status to permanent residents. And usually the groups that are already at risk of not applying now will be also the groups that are at risk of not upgrading their their status, uh, immigration status in the future. So, first of all, we have people who might, for several reasons, be not aware of the scheme, and even those people who are aware of the scheme, they might not know that they need to apply to the scheme. This could include groups such as very long residents in the UK that have been living in the UK for, for several decades, and they might think that the EU settlement scheme is just for recent arrivals. People who have permanent residence documents and they might not know that these documents might, uh, might not work after, after the, the Brexit, after the transition period, and they need to apply to this scheme. Also, children of EU citizens who depend on their parents. And this is particularly the case of children of EU citizens who were born in the UK and the parents might wrongly assume that their, their children are, are UK citizens. And this is not always the case. People also who have been uh, rejected for permanent residence in the past, they might think they might not be, uh, they might not apply just because they think, because they think they might be rejected again. People with past criminal convictions who were removed in the past or people who are in prison. This is a particular group that is, um, uh, the press is giving some attention now uh, because these groups might be rejected for several reasons, uh, particularly for not meeting the suitability requirement. But also people in prison might have particular barriers because they are not aware of the scheme and that they need to apply. Um, also, people that have uh, don't have social contacts, they are isolated, so they are not aware that this can exists. Also, uh, people, uh, mentioned before, who are expecting to return home or who might just apply, um, arrive to the UK, and they might think that because they are leaving uh, relatively soon, they don't need to apply. Also, other people might be aware of the scheme, but they might struggle to navigate the application process uh, or access the, the application. As you know, uh, the youth Student Scheme is an online uh, application system, so people with low levels of literacy or more particular digital literacy, most of them tend to be uh, old people, particularly socially vulnerable people. They might struggle uh, to apply without external assistance. Also, people with low proficiency in English might struggle to, to understand how the system works. Uh, people also with lack of mental capacity, whose family members are not aware, uh, or, or carers, family members of carers are not aware of the scheme, so they don't apply for them. Or people with other mental health problems or disabilities, which also are likely to struggle uh, if they don't have assistance from their family or from external organizations. Then we have also considered uh, the group of people who are particularly vulnerable. They are uh, facing situations of exclusion uh, for various reasons. Many of these people are likely to struggle to provide valid identity evidence, like an ID or a valid passport, and evidence of their continuous residence for the five, uh, last five years. So in some cases, even if some of these people might have been in the UK for longer than five years, they might struggle to justify or to prove that this has been the case. So they might at the end secure the less uh, um, permanent uh, pre-settled status. This includes, for example, children in care or recent care leavers, Victims of modern slavery, uh, people living in, in poverty, homeless people, and um, also the migrant Roma communities. And finally, uh, we also have uh, this obviously it's difficult to identify, but. Uh, People that, for several reasons, might not have complete evidence proving their eligibility to the scheme. Uh, this could be the case, for example, of people with expired passports or ID cards that they need to reapply, particularly when they apply for the first time to their embassies to get a, a new ID. And depending on the country, this might take several months, so they might struggle to apply on time. Uh, people also lacking evidence of the relationship to a qualified new citizen. This is the case, for example, of non-new citizens who are family members of, uh, of eligible citizens and they need to justify uh, their eligibility based on this relationship. Uh, people also who are living in non-standard housing, so for them might be difficult to prove uh, this continuous residence requirement, and also people who have arrived shortly before uh, the cut off date for eligibility, as, as mentioned earlier. One of the main problems that we have uh, in relation to the US settlement scheme uh, is that we don't have enough data to monitor how the the, the US settlement scheme is covering all the eligible people. Uh, in particular, we don't have data uh, to identify the number and the characteristics of residents who haven't applied to the US settlement scheme. And remember, these people will become irregular after the 30th of June, twenty twenty one. Also, we don't have. Precise data to know whether people are being uh, granted the right status. So, for example, people that have been in UK for more than five years, but then they get the, the less secure pre-settled status. And also, we still have uh, no data on people who fail to upgrade from pre-settled to uh, settled status. So, at the moment, we don't have uh, data to monitor these transitions. This should be relatively easy, and it will become a, a bigger problem in the future than, than it is now um yes so i i I will finish my presentation here thank you so
0: much that was extremely interesting i really liked that point that you started with about how the pandemic has put the supporting infrastructure out of action right now which is i think a really important point that we don't often acknowledge enough Um, and then that was a really rich picture of the existing vulnerable groups but also new ones that have arisen just because of of COVID that point about how people may have returned home on, a, on an initially short-term basis that has now become an extended period of time is such an important one with how it interacts with minimum residence requirements so thank you and I'd love to come back to the data points later and hear about how this year has made that more more challenging um okay I'd like to turn to Andy next um as I mentioned he's Deputy director for citizens rights in the foreign office um, hi Andy, how is implementation of the withdrawal agreement going on your side? What are your main headaches and what's keeping you up at night um, following the pandemic's arrival?
3: Thanks Megan, uh, good to be here uh, this afternoon, especially following up on uh, Aliyah's excellent report which I very much encourage everyone to read. I'll speak a little bit about UK implementation first uh, and then touch on implementation for UK nationals. In the EU as well. So, starting in the UK, I think it is worth reiterating. Hopefully, this will come as a surprise to nobody on the call. That right from the very beginning, citizens' rights have been a priority, both for the UK government and also for the members. I think this has been a through. Actually step back a little bit, the headline. I think it's a really good story to tell on this and um, starting with the EU settlement scheme we've heard this, uh, about it today but with 4 million over 4 million now applications received and 3.8 million over 3.8 million grants of status it has really been quite a successful program and i think we should keep praise to the work of the you know 1500 home office staff who are working hard to process these applications and all the colleagues in the Settlement Resolution Centre who are available uh, all days to answer questions from EU citizens here. Um, We've also been supporting uh, more vulnerable or harder to reach EU citizens here in the UK. I think the report talks about the nine million pounds we've spent for 57 independent organisations to help UK, uh, sorry, EU citizens who perhaps we in the government aren't able to reach through our existing ch- channels. And it's good that that's been expanded to another 8 million for this financial year. Um, we've talked about COVID and I think one of the benefits, one of the real positives about the design of the EU settlement scheme has been the fact that it is digital, predominantly digital by default. And so throughout the pandemic, people EU citizens have been able to continue to apply because we talked about those who aren't able to apply and so all the assisted digital support that the Home Office has put in place is continues to be really important but in the way that uh, some implementation in some member states has been quite seriously disrupted or delayed due to the Covid pandemic in the use of those EU um, and it's quite nice the um select committee in the house of commons published report on this and right this week uh, describing the eu settlement scheme as a, as a success and a considerable achievement and we don't always get uh lots of praise from house of commons select Committees, so it's really nice to see how the sort of scheme being recognized there i um, just moving away from the eu settlement scheme um, the independent monitoring authority uh, has appointed its interim chief executive dr catherine chamberlain Uh, The IMA is the watchdog, I suppose, that will make sure that the UK is meeting its obligations under the withdrawal agreement. And we've got Natasha here from the Commission. The Commission will uh, perform the equivalent function, making sure that Member States uphold their sides of the agreement. And then finally, on the social security coordination, a bit more of a technical area, I suppose, but nonetheless incredibly important. And our social security departments have been doing a great job in operationalising those social security coordination provisions of the withdrawal agreement, uh, putting together a set of joint guidance so that it'll be a consistent approach no matter whether a system is interacting with DWP or health or any other department and that guidance will be published shortly. So just turning to UK national in the EU if I may. Um, firstly what the UK government is doing because we know that in many states in most cases, UK nationals need to take action, but in constitutive systems, that's even more important. And so, we're rolling out two big multimedia communication campaigns. One we'll focused very much on UK nationals resident in the EU to make sure that they take the actions they need to take to secure their rights, and then one to UK nationals travelling to the EU as well, because we all know there will be changes whatever the outcome of negotiations to uh, to those people. Um, those, that, those communication campaigns are having a great effect already, already drawing record numbers of people to our living in guides and to our online guidance. Uh, we've seen some fantastic uh, examples of uh, innovative approaches. I saw a picture, Anton, of uh, buses driving around Malta, giving people the instructions they need, uh, but they really are cons- campaign not just being exclusively digital, but very much being in the real world too. And then and for those uh, UK nationals who are harder to reach, or perhaps a bit more vulnerable, or aren't easy to access, especially uh, disabled or elderly UK nationals, or those living in more remote communities, we have a £3 million support fund, which is now live, and we've got eight implementing organisations rolling out that support. uh up to 500 uk nationals have had their application to reported through through their private organizations yeah encouraging to see and so' comes a lot of nationals um not it can't just be uh the uk government's responsibility under the withdrawal agreement member states clearly have a really important responsibility here to make sure that uk nationals uh, are able to secure that in a timely fashion. And we've seen some really good examples from member states. COVID are working really hard and it's great to see colleagues from different member states here today. You can say a bit more about how they are implementing the withdrawal agreement in their member states. But we do have some concerns remaining and we continue to draw attention to these uh with the commission through the special the special right and the committee and directly with the states so we're concerned that some of the application windows are going to be quite short so you don't really have to be on the ball to make sure that they are taking actually great that the legal minimum of six months and the withdrawal agreement won't be if the systems I expect those application windows somewhat but given that citizens will have had 27 months to take action under the EU Settlement Scheme, I think that the most generous member state is currently 12 or 13 uh, months. There's still quite a big gap there. We've talked a little bit about application criteria and this is our second concern. In the UK, when are really applying freaky tests, you prove your identity, you prove your residency, and that you don't have serious convictions. We're not at the point of application checking against the freedom of movement criteria. And there is a concern, especially with COVID, there are some people who may expect, and we might expect to be secure under the withdrawal agreement, may find that they run into difficulties. So we're calling on member states to take a flexible and generous approach to UK nationals. The third area is communications. I've talked about what the UK is doing for UK nationals, but the withdrawal agreement commits member states to also Uh, rolling out publicity. So in the best examples, and good to have colleagues from the Netherlands here today, you know, we've seen Member States writing to UK Nationals whether they hold the details or running out, rolling out social media campaigns. We'd like to see more of that across all 27 Member States. And then finally, a consistent application. The withdrawal agreement mandates all seems to be simple and streamlined and transparent. Uh, I hope they will be and won't be caught up in the, when they're rolled out in bureaucracy and red tape uh, and there aren't too many face-to-face meetings required, especially if we see a second and third wave of COVID across the continent. Um, And we're calling on as well on central authorities to make sure that where uh, implementation is taking place at a regional level, there is some level of consistency between regions. And we're not seeing in extreme cases different foreign authorities in different regions all taking different approaches because that's just going to make it harder for citizens to secure their rights. So that's what uh, the UK is doing uh, and a bit about what we see in the EU as well.
0: Thank you so much, Andy. Um... And thank you for reminding us that we need to celebrate successes as well as just highlight uh, deficiencies and limitations of systems. The numbers really are very impressive. And I also really like your point that a digital system has disadvantages, but it is really thriving in a year of pandemic. Um, So thanks for those points and also the the innovation, which um, again, would be nice to turn back to once we've heard from the other governments. Um, I want to turn next to Anton-Sevaster Uh, He's the CEO for Identity
4: Malta. We started um, accepting renewals for for the Brexit applications after um, uh, the withdrawal agreement in 17th February 2020 of this year. We started uh, um, started accepting applications at our offices. Um, uh, Obviously, during the pandemic, we had to stop the process uh, for, for a period of time. We still accepted those with uh, change of address and new applications. We accepted them by appointment. Then in the 1st of July, we started again accepting um, the applications for the renewal or change of status to the new agreement according to Article Article 50. Um, uh, what we've done uh, so far, um, we divided and um, departs in Malta, we divide the different dis- districts in Malta. We sent a letter to those registered with us, um, a letter to Berlin with a leaflet and uh, an application with all the information needed in order to apply. Those from the relative district, so who, who, who live in the, uh, in the relative district, they had to come to our offices in order that we accept their application and take their biometrics. Until now, we have roughly served around 75 percent, 80 percent of all the areas. And um, from all those that we, we sent, so from these areas, from 80 percent of the whole of WANDA, we had the, um, roughly about 40, percent of uh, the, those applicants who turned to our offices in order to submit their new application. So practically by the end of next next month, we should uh, we should finish the uh, the registration process, and we will leave up till the 22nd of December for those who had missed to come during these these uh, these times. So that they, those who with, with, uh, who had who didn't or who couldn't come during that time. And those could come in that month during that period of time, about four weeks. We also uh, managed to, we also managed to uh, serve those uh, those uh, elderly people uh, in time before the pandemic, uh, at, at their homes or at their elderly homes. And where 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 that wasn't possible, we accepted applications. With uh, a photo, with a photograph, and uh, obviously some relatives could come to our offices to apply on their behalf. So actually, that's what we've, been, what we've done so far. We are now trying, we are now sorting out the process so that we can is- start issuing the residency cards for these British nationals, and that should also start in a few days. So, do you have some questions, or do you want to elaborate on something else?
2: Yes, I can ask
0: one follow-up question. Sounds like there's been a lot of flexibility built into the system, um, but are there any eligibility requirements that are that are checked? Uh, Andy was speaking about how one of the big question marks was whether or not um, employment status, income, um, health insurance, these kinds of things were being checked as part of the registration process.
4: Yes. Once they apply, once they apply, the applications will be accepted by the front officers. So the front officers will check they they will have the necessary documentation according to the application and according to what we have established in our in our regulation. um uh, After after they are sorted, um, these are the applications are inputted in the system just in front of, of the of the client, of the customer, and automatically they will then start the processing at the back, at the back end. And they are also sent to the police, uh, to various police departments or electronically. This is the indicators for that. And while the other documents are checked manually one by one by our back offices. When that process finished, then they will pass to the final phase, which will be pending final approval. Um, when the uh, after all this, the supervisor will check the application again and will give the go ahead for the final approval, so that the application will automatically um, pass to the printing section where the residence permit will be printed, and the applicant will be advised by a, by a, by an advice uh, by printed by posted advice. And they can collect the letter with the card with the key.
0: Could you say a little bit more about what kind of set out in the regulation what is the criteria that they're evaluated according to?
4: okay um, first and foremost the uh, they will have to establish on what criteria they are applying there will be employment self sufficient partner all these mm-hmm. uh, these type of applications. And uh, they would also would need to uh, would also need to prove that they have enough funds to 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 stay there to to stay to stay here in Malta. And uh, obviously they would need to bring their passports. They would also need to bring evidence that they have been in Malta for the last um, six months. And these would vary from uh, accounts in the bank, from receipts, from uh, electricity bills, water bills, and things like that, which will be assessed by the assessors at the back office.
0: Thank you very much. Um, very helpful. Um, I, I think I'd like to come back to this in the Q&A if this is possible, because I think the question of what happens to people who can't fulfill documentary requirements or don't even fulfill eligibility criteria, for instance, because their income thresholds aren't high enough or they haven't had uh, continuous health insurance to qualify under the free movement directive. This question of what happens to people who, whose applications are turned down seems to me one of the big, uh, the big remaining issues um, uh, when it comes to uh, citizens' rights. But thank you so much for your for your intervention. And let's move now to a different uh, different country in Europe. Um, we have two Netherlands speakers who are going to split their time. Uh, Bessie and Joram. Um I, I assume Bessie is going first. What are the lessons from the Netherlands uh, in terms of implementing the withdrawal agreement? Um, And and what are you struggling with?
5: Megan, and thank all the others for their very uh, interesting contributions. The Netherlands started in 2018 with the first focus groups of Brits because we wanted to know how we could uh, get the communication done. So we started, in the first week of 2019 was an information letter to all UK nationals in the Netherlands, where we explained what would happen in case of the Brexit and especially also in case of a no deal. Furthermore, we all sent all the UK nationals in March, 2019, a temporary resident permit. So they know they could stay, even if there was a no deal, which luckily didn't happen, of course. And we continue every three or four months with focus groups. So we knew what was happening in the community and we could adjust our information on the needs of the community most of the information is digital. The Netherlands is very digital country. Uh, Almost all uh, citizens have uh, access to fast internet in the Netherlands that makes it pretty easy for us to just continue the digital information to all the UK nationals. We started our application process in the 1st of february after we send an information letter to all uk nationals who are registered in the netherlands on the 31st of january with explanation of how the system will work in the netherlands and how we uh, ask them to apply for resident permits in time the aim of the dutch government is to give them a soon as possible the information they need and the new resident permit. So we we aim at uh, finishing everything this year although we know that they still have the possibility of, to apply till uh, half of next year. But because we want to give the security to UK nationals in the Netherlands, we think it's very important that they can make an application this year. Our system is that we invite invited UK nationals. We start with the UK nationals who lived the longest in the Netherlands to invite them to apply for resident permits. And we finished the invitations uh, in August. So we invited 35,000 UK nationals to apply for resident permits. And but. of these people applied and got their resident permit by now. The first resident documents we delivered on the 27th of February, that's a biometric resident permit with the fingerprints and the photos and will be future proof. Uh, and two weeks later, we had the lockdown and the pandemic hit us because we couldn't get the fingerprints during the first phase of the pandemic. Um, from August on, we had some extra offices and space for getting the biometrics. And we still think that by the end of the year, everyone will get their documents so they can travel proof that they are. Beneficiaries of the withdrawal agreement. I think I will give the word to Joram for some ads on.
6: Yes, for sharing the information on the Dutch system. Uh, Let me first start with my role as a coordinator of citizens' rights related to Brexit. I am responsible for a consistent, coherent, and timely implementation of the citizens' rights part of the withdrawal agreement including related policy areas outside of the withdrawal agreement. And I haven't seen this role in that many other countries, but in my opinion, it is a really useful role. Um, It has, for example, resulted in a consistent interpretation of all policy areas that touch upon the residency part of the withdrawal agreement, which has been helpful in our national implementation. Uh, Not only can I try to connect other departments uh, um, in order to solve outstanding issues, I can also analyze whether every angle I'm aware of has been taken into account. And this has, for example, uh, helped in solving uh, the question of the treatment of UK personnel working for uh, uh, international organizations after Brexit, uh, because this issue has cross-links with many other policy areas, for example, of the Ministry of Foreign Affairs, but also of the Ministry of Healthcare, the Ministry of Social Affairs, and the Ministry of Education. And this issue has not been dealt with in the withdrawal agreement and unfortunately such a role also makes you the clear owner of the problem and of the issue, but I I would rather be the owner of the issue than accept that the issue uh, remains unsolved. and uh, in my role as a coordinator, uh, I was not only responsible for the implementation of the uh, citizen's right part of the uh, withdrawal agreement, but also uh, I was responsible for the stakeholder management with all uh, all uh, different stakeholders inside and outside of the Dutch government. And uh, I think this is also one of the best pe- practices I want to share with you. Um, we really did cooperate with uh, all stakeholders involved, um, uh, uh, also with the British in Europe, the, the grassroots organization that was mentioned before, and the British Embassy in the Hague. and. We have had two successful meetings with them in which pressing questions were answered and concerns were uh, were shared that were alive among the British uh, population living in the Netherlands. And in those meetings, all relevant government agencies participated um, because we are convinced that listening to concerns and questions can improve the implementation of the citizens rights part of the withdrawal agreement. And during those meetings, we were able to alleviate some of the concerns and also answer some of the questions that were raised. And after the meeting, we modified our procedures and communications to the wishes of the British in Europe and the British Embassy. Um, And we jointly informed our parliament about the steps uh, we had taken. Um, And I think this has, has not only resulted in a good relationship based on mutual trust, but also really helped UK citizens to clarify the sometimes unclear situation to them. Um, And the second best practice I would like to uh, share with you is that we have seen over the course of the, uh, the past few years that Brexit is mostly a political process, which sometimes blur the lines between what is true and what is false. And during the course of those years, we have received a lot of complaints, both about the situation in the Netherlands for UK citizens living there, and about the situation in the UK for Dutch citizens living there. Um, And uh, lately, we had a very useful meeting with the Home Office and the Foreign and Commonwealth Office to have a dialogue about those issues that were at play on both sides, and he uh, was involved in that meeting as well. And in my opinion, that was one of the most useful things we have done so far since this really showed that many of the concerns that were raised by by citizens uh, and are even echoed on the highest political level are at least a little bit more nuanced and sometimes just unfounded. So my recommendation would be uh, make sure you are aware of the concerns, but do check the facts with your counterparts in the UK instead of echoing those uh, concerns without checking the facts. Um, So all in all, I think from a Dutch perspective, um uh we uh really value the cooperation with all the stakeholders involved, including the Foreign and Commonwealth Office and including the Home Office and the British Embassy here. Um and I think we should convince everyone to apply for our residency scheme. And I think I can hand back to Megan then.
0: Thank you. Thanks to both of you. Um I was in a round table last year where um uh, one, a, a representative of another member state said, if only we could be like the Dutch and have sent out a letter at the beginning of this process. Um, if only we could all be like that. So I think that's a nice lesson about early planning and outreach, which has obviously worked well for you all. And Joram, I loved your comments about, about governance and about how, you know, this is such a unique role that you're playing and how it's so important to be coordinating across government and with all the different stakeholders on such a complex issue at this time. So, uh, it's great that you're that you're doing that. Um, okay, so uh, I'd love to turn now to Nastasia for um, the European Commission's kind of more uh, overarching view. So, what have you done on mapping progress and monitoring uh, legislation in different member states and providing guidance? And what's your take on how implementation is going uh,
5: overall? Mm.
7: So, thank you very much, Megan, and uh, hello from from Brussels. Uh, as Megan just said, I'll give you a bit of an overview of how the European Commission has worked with the member states in implementing the citizens' rights part of the withdrawal agreement, uh, which of course has has been a top priority for the for the European Commission uh, in in the last couple of uh, years, and uh, now focused on implementation, of course. Um, I'll start with uh, how the Commission has uh, supported the Member States in their implementation action because implementation is such on the ground, of course, to be done by the Member States. Uh, first of all, the Commission has issued some, some formal documents for, for the Member States to work with. Uh, one of them is um, the Commission implementing decision that has laid down the format uh, of the new residence documents to be issued under the withdrawal agreement. So the documents that are going to evidence. The beneficiary status of UK nationals and their family members in the member states in the EU. Um, so there will be a uniform format; it will be the same and in all the in all the member states, and will be a physical document that uh, UK nationals and their family members will hold, and will be able to show in their context with authorities, but also when they travel, importantly. Um, and then the commission has issued uh, in May this year a guidance note, which of course is not uh, any kind of formal interpretation of the citizens rights part of the withdrawal agreement, but um, it's kind of an explainer. It's supposed to be explanatory information that helps the Member states and, and all the uh, national authorities that are going to implement and apply the withdrawal agreement to better understand the different uh, provisions that state. Uh, so those are them more formal documents, but uh, what is very important is of course also our direct interaction with the member states, and we're doing this in different in different ways and on different levels. Uh, one very important forum that we use regularly is the expert group meeting. So we have experts in all the different member states um, who are very familiar with the current EU free movement law and who also deal with the implementation of the uh, residence rights under the Withdrawal Agreement. Uh, We have had two dedicated uh, meetings uh, so far this year, and we'll have another one uh, before the end of the year, so before the end of the transition period, where we discuss with member states where they stand in their implementation action. And uh, we can also flag certain points which we think are important for the member states to take into account. We can answer questions in the spot, so it's really a very useful uh, forum to discuss implementation progress. Uh, what we also do, however, is to ask the Member States for written updates, regular written updates on their implementation status on the situation and all that uh, information, the feedback we get then feeds into the more formal or institutionalized um, you know processes for for um, monitoring implementation, such as um, Andy mentioned it already, the specialized committee on uh, citizens' rights where the UK and uh, the EU form of the Commission. Are represented and discussed implementation progress. Um, What is also very important in practice is that we uh, provide the guidance whenever we get bilateral questions. So member states of course uh, are are very welcome to write to us at any point in time with questions that they face in their implementation and we provide them with guidance and we are also monitoring and reviewing draft legislation or adopted legislation uh, to reach out to member states if if we see any issues of potential concerns or issues that we think uh, should be clarified. Um, So that's also something that we are doing on a rolling basis as information becomes available. Uh, The commission is, of course, also publishing information at its own level. So at the EU level, very important here is uh, a table that I want to mention that the commission has published on the commission website. So it's an overview table. It shows the implementation scheme chosen by the member states. We've heard already that there are two schemes. So each member state had to choose one, either a constitutive one where you need to apply for new resident status or a declaratory one. Um, And we have a table that that shows this uh, very clearly and that also shows since when application schemes have been open or when they are going to open and what the application deadlines are for constitutive schemes for the end of the grace periods in the respective member states. Um, well, concerning cooperation in well with the member states in, in the current times of the, the COVID the coronavirus crisis, uh, more specifically, I have to say that um, there has not been any kind of tangible impact as regards our work as the Commission when we coordinate with with the member states. Uh, I mean, obviously, like like anyone else, we had to move uh, meetings online, so we now meet the, the member states virtually. Uh, but other than that, that there was no no tangible um, impact as regards our own work, we have seen, of course, that in some member states uh, there were unfortunately some delays in you know, preparing legislation, passing legislation, opening opening schemes. However, we can confirm that all the member states are fully fully on track to have their schemes up and running on the first of January, um, as you might know there is no obligation under the withdrawal agreement to have the schemes open for the 1st of January. So member states that have opened their schemes already have done this on on a purely voluntary basis. So all member states are definitely on track to meet their their legal obligations. Um, Maybe something that could also be be interesting to know is that um, more than 70% of UK nationals who live in the EU actually live in member states that have opted for declaratory schemes. So schemes for no application for a new resident status is necessary. But in those schemes, the UK nationals and their family members, they will be protected by the withdrawal agreement simply by operation of the law. So on the 1st of January, right after midnight, they will become withdrawal agreement beneficiaries without having to do anything until some more than 70%. Um, because it was uh, previously also mentioned, 13 member states have chosen a constitutive scheme and 14 a declaratory, so it's, it's almost. 50 50. Those member states that have chosen the competitive schemes have often chosen a longer deadline than the minimum one of the end of June. So, eight member states have chosen a deadline which will be either end of September or end of December 21. And of the member states with competitive schemes, six have uh, already opened their systems, they already accept applications, um, and two more are going to open the schemes before the end of the transition period. Okay. So, we'll have eight out of 13. Uh, open and running before the end of the transition. When it comes to, um, well, support for vulnerable citizens, um, I can only give you kind of a general overview since, of course, the member states to to do the specific outreach uh, to to citizens in general and and vulnerable citizens more specifically, Um, but uh, what the commission really encourages, and we have already heard some member states do, is um, to individually contact UK nationals as much as possible. so to really send them personal emails, personal letters, to make sure that they're they aware of the situation, they know the rights and they also know what steps they have to take to safeguard their rights, if, if any. And uh, there are quite a number of member states that actually do this. So at least six out of the 13 member states with constitutive schemes are doing this. And there are also a number of member states with declaratory schemes that are reaching out individually and personally to UK nationals. Uh, what some member states are also doing for vulnerable citizens is um, that they uh, provide for home visits so that there is a possibility that a staff member of the authority in charge actually goes and meets the vulnerable citizen to provide support on the spot and also to receive applications so a staff member would go to a hospital, to a care facility, whatever the vulnerable person might not otherwise be able to apply. Uh, It's located uh, to provide tailored support. And as we have already heard, um, the member states still work with the UK embassies in their respective member states uh, to provide tailored support to run uh, information seminars, which uh, we know have been very, very successful. And maybe just a very brief word on uh, how the commission is going to monitor member states implementation of the withdrawal agreement and, and the residence rights after the end of the transition period. And he has also um, mentioned this briefly already. So for the commission, it uh, it will use its regular powers when it comes to monitoring how member states implement uh, and apply EU law. That means that uh, we can open formal treaty infringement proceedings. We can take more informal steps at the pre-infringement stage. We will of course deal with the citizen complaints and work on that basis, but the basis that we're also going to look into issues in our own initiative. Thank you so much. I'll hand back to Megan.
0: Thank you. Thank you very much. That was extremely clear and comprehensive. I have many follow-up questions but I, I want to uh, open the Q&A um which is already open but I want to encourage you all to send your questions. Um as I said before you can email events events@migrationpolicy.org migrationpolicy.org uh, you can tweet at migrationpolicy um or you can use the create Q&A function if you're um, attending through Webex rather than on the phone. I have had a few questions already come in, and I wanted to start with one to our analysts, uh, to Marinia and Alia. So, same question to the two of you, starting with Alia, please. What's top of your wish list for what governments uh, could do to protect vulnerable groups um, in the limited remaining time?
4: Thanks,
1: Megan. And actually, it's, it's really reassuring to hear some of the
0: things that Nastasia
1: was, was just saying because they chime very well. Uh, with the, the recommendations that we make in the report, so one of the main ones um, that Andy also alluded to is in terms of doing smart outreach and making sure that it's available not just online but also offline, which is where most of the, the most vulnerable citizens will be. Um, and so we we had recommended to invest also in joint communications, not necessarily for every member state to have to reinvent the wheel. But it's also possible to do, you know, animated videos that can be dubbed in different languages or that can be adapted to the national context uh, and to make sure that some of those different, um, you know, channels to advertise the, the schemes are happening in schools in care homes in hospitals uh, and other ways to, to reach them. So, it's really, really good to hear what Nastasia just said. Um, Some of the other things on the wish list are about monitoring and feedback loops from the very beginning. What Marina was saying about uh, not really knowing the population that we're dealing with and not knowing how many people aren't applying is a a critical question. And uh, one of the things that we had recommended was for states to develop monitoring and evaluation that could track both the user experience as well as performance. And being able to identify bottlenecks and discrepancies, if there are any between, you know, local level uh, processing of different applications um, and also being able to use that data to decide based on evidence, whether to extend the, uh, the grace period. We've already heard that some countries have chosen to extend it, but data such as this could be used to, to make an evidence based decision on that. Um, so the other things were on establishing clear and regular feedback channels, uh, which I think the example from the Netherlands of those regular um, focus groups is a really great example. Um, and also just to make sure that states are collecting demographic and employment data on applicants, so that they have something to compare against, you know, the, the population that they anticipated would be applying, uh, and then based on that to see where to target um, communications. Such as for different profiles of people or perhaps residents who work in particular areas that aren't applying and these kind of things. Um, we have a, a lot of recommendations on the wish list, but I think I'll just put the cherry on the top is to, to consider and prepare for the post registration period. And that's essential. Um, we don't anticipate that any of these schemes will be totally error error free, especially given the fact that we don't have a, a complete grasp on who should be applying in the first place. So to reduce the potential damage to eligible people, it's really important to have some kind of second chance measures to have something for people who aren't able to apply within the deadline, to be clear on what the appeals processes will be. Um, and more broadly than that, you know, we've already
0: heard about the, the monitoring that we'll- Elia, um, in the interest of time, oh, I encourage people to read your read your paper of Excellent recommend- okay. recommendations in it, and and just move on to Marinia now. Um, yes, uh, Thanks very much, Alia. Any recommendations, or uh, Would you want to return to that point about the difficulties with data, and you know what what is on your data wish list right now?
2: So yeah, in addition to everything that Alia mentioned, uh this issue of data, particularly that we don't have uh, data about non-applicants, so who are who are these eligible people that have not yet applied probably improving the linkage between different uh, data sources with the, the US statistics and the different sources of administrative data including the department of uh, pensions also benefit uh, administrative data so there are a range of administrative data that can be linked And people, uh, well, people from the home office might know that this person is active in the system, maybe it's working, receiving benefits, but it doesn't appear in the EU Settlement Scheme, so that might help uh, to identify at least some people that that are eligible and haven't applied yet. Thank you so much.
0: Um, uh, Can I turn to Andy now? Andy, you mentioned um, quite briefly that there are some responsibilities related to outreach that are In the hands of member states when it comes to their UK national population. Is it difficult to draw lines of responsibility right now given you know this action that you're doing and there's also these responsibilities that member states have Um, and then relatedly uh, is it difficult to make sure that the advice is up to date that the UK government is, is giving when there are information gaps and when things are changing quite quickly?
3: You know what? I don't think it is difficult to draw the line. And in fact, I'd go further than that and say it works best when we and our network of embassies and uh, high commissions and consulates are working with the host governments in member states. Uh, We – our ambassador to Madrid did a joint video with the Secretary of State for Migration in Spain, and it got uh, higher viewing figures than anything else we've put out. Digitally. And similarly, um, when we work really well with the Commission and the Task Force UK to get a really granular understanding of member state plans, then that means that our guidance and our Living In Guides and our other products on UK can be totally up to date and accurate. But similarly, the content that the Commission is putting out can be totally up to date and accurate. So I think, uh, and at a Technical level, at an official to an official level, I think the cooperation and collaboration we've seen uh, across all member states has been really, really impressive. And when the history of this whole process comes to be written, I'm sure that will be pointed to as as a strong point.
0: Thanks, Andy. Um, I I have a question for the Netherlands that's come in. I'm not sure if it's for Becky or Yoram. I think it's for Becky. Which is um is there any analysis on who hasn't applied yet for the residence permit um uh right now? And perhaps I can add on to that, what is your plan for dealing with people who don't apply within um the time frame or who don't meet any eligibility requirements and have their um applications rejected?
5: Um, yeah, I think I can answer Betty, yeah. Uh, we did some initial analyze of the people who didn't apply, and we can only analyze about the period with, uh, of how long they are in the Netherlands and what are the age demographics. And we see that most of the people who didn't apply it's about 6,000 uh, are in the working age between 20 and 60 and they live about three or four years in the Netherlands. So that's the main analyze we did at this moment. And we're just looking into how to we can reach this group. And one of the things is like, we have a Brexit impact scan for employees. So we get, we're going to raise awareness also with, with employees that something is changing also for the UK national employees so that's what we try to do but we don't know the people we don't know one of the main concerns we have also in the Netherlands we have a very good registration system the personal name record database but it's not 100% uh,
2: that's what we know
0: Thank you. Um, Joram, did you want to add anything or should I throw a different question to you? Which would you prefer?
6: Uh, I just want to reiterate what Betty said. We are doing our utmost to reach everyone and to convince them to apply in time. Um, And uh, yes, uh, perhaps you can now throw another question to me.
0: Well, yeah, I mean, it's related, which is, I mean, you're also responsible for following the, the future relationship and for uh, negotiations of that. What are you looking out for there when it relates to uh, specific groups? For instance, you know, people who run businesses out of several countries. There's obviously been a big call for free movement, rights.
6: This is a, a little bit of a hard question to answer because the... the um It was a a clear red line uh, from the UK and Andy, please fill me in on this to stop the uh, free movement of persons and free movement of services uh, after the transition period. So the the topics about which we are negotiating in the future relationship uh, or uh, for for the future partnership uh, uh, on uh, mobility topics are quite limited. so uh, what you just raised, um, um, we will have to see uh, after the negotiations have ended, whether that's included and part of it um, and how that is covered.
0: I tried to ask it in a neutral way, but thanks for your similarly diplomatic answer. Um, if I could turn to Anton now, um, what would be most helpful from the commission right now?
4: told you before. Our exercise is near, of registration is near the finish. So um, uh, we'll start to link cards as soon as possible from the next few days. We'll be starting off from those who had the expired cards. We're also um, uh, accepting new applications. We'll be accepting new applications and uh, uh, renewal applications up till the end of this year. And then from next year, we'll also be accepting um, the applications 30, 30, 30. till 30, 30 June of 2021. So, uh, for the time being, I think I, I don't know what 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 we could expect from from the European Commission. So I don't think that uh, since the process has already started, kicked out, and the and the process was uh, practically quite smooth, I don't think that you can expect something that could help us from the European Commission.
0: Thank you. It's it's good that we're showcasing some of the good news stories as well um, in this webinar, so thanks for that. Um, uh, Nastasia. I wanted to ask you a little bit about about governance and coordination in the European Commission. So there's always been a sort of dividing line between third country nationals who are the responsibility of DG Home and EU nationals for the responsibility of DG Employment. Um, Where are UK nationals going to fit in the sort of future portfolio of the European Commission um, and, and how uh, is that status kind of being coordinated right now, given these uh, slightly quirky uh,
5: portfolio divisions?
7: Yes, so, um, well, to start with your question, who will be responsible for, for UK nationals after the end of the year? Um, the, the question below for the is a UK national beneficiary of the withdrawal agreement or not? If the answer is yes, so we have a beneficiary under the withdrawal agreement, then it will be DG Justice in general for residence rights. Um, if it's about frontier workers or social security coordination under the withdrawal agreement, that will be handled by DG Employment, but the residence rights in general will be handled by DG Justice. Um, if we talk about a UK national who will not be covered by the withdrawal agreement, then he or she will be covered and handled by DG Home as a. Uh, normal third country national, so that will be the, the dividing line in, in the future. Um, it is true that uh, we currently uh, also under the movement law have um, certain division of tasks inside the uh, European commission. So justice and my unit, uh, we're dealing with free movement of these citizens uh, in general and of their family members when they are third country national um, teacher employment is. Specifically dealing with workers, um, because there's also other legislation applicable, uh, not only the EU Free Movement um, Directive. Um, so the, these two expert levels uh, are, of course, also present when we now implement the withdrawal agreement uh, on residence rights, DG Justice, on frontier workers and social security cooperation, DG uh, Employment. Um so th- th- from that perspective uh cooperation and coordinational governance more generally is actually very similar to to any EU free movement law issue. I wouldn't say it's more or less complex than, than than any of those um what we have on top of the the expert level is of course the task force for relations with the United Kingdom that has a coordinating role um so that that exists on top of it um but otherwise, the coordinational governance process is very very similar and um, has, has been working very, very effectively. Everyone, of course, is aware of the, the top priority of, of the issue to make to make sure that the uh, life choices are protected and safeguarded and so, cooperation has worked very well inside the commission.
0: Thank you so much. Um, I have two um, slightly technical questions for Andy, so uh, I hope these are questions that you can answer. Um, uh, well, well, one is the technical one, isn't so technical. The technical one is Whether any consideration has been given to people in a situation where they're trying to return to take up status in other um, EU countries. This is UK nationals. In this case, it's uh, someone who lives in Singapore Um, and how travel bans and, um, uh, you know, flights flights being grounded are going to interact with Um, with uh, Brexit requirements. So he'd like to take up status before the end of the year and is worried about um, not being able to return home. And then the second um, question is about whether you're concerned at all about uh, Irish nationals in the UK, who are obviously covered by um, common travel agreement instead, uh, common travel area, excuse me. Um, Are there any concerns there about uh, the status of Irish nationals or any interesting considerations that you've been um, paying attention to?
3: Thanks Megan. So um, obviously COVID does add additional complications in the example you gave of travel bans, travel restrictions is is very difficult. Um, And it is something that we are working through the implications of domestically. In the UK system, just stepping back a little bit, you know, we've been very clear deadline for the EU Settlement Scheme will be um, June next year and as I the Scheme very early have had those to apply it's very clear that wherever the grounds for late applications the UK will take a very generous view some guidance on what constitutes reasonable ground Early next year. Um, on the member state side, which is the example you gave, Megan, I think we'd encourage, as I said in my initial remarks, member states to take a more pragmatic approach. Um, it's up to members, of course, to, LA in turn, implement the withdrawal agreement and where they set their deadlines. But it is really reassuring that they have decided not to stick to the legal minimum, middle of June next year, and are pushing their deadlines to right out towards the end of 2021. And hopefully, by that time, that does give you those UK nationals you described, Megan, enough time uh, to, to return. Um, I, I won't say too much, if that's okay, Megan, on the uh, on the Irish issue, uh, as I'm not the, the expert on that. But as you rightly said, uh, Irish citizens um, are in a very uh, special position by virtue of the common travel area and our deciding motivation in all our policy-making, whether it is on residency or social security coordination, is to make sure that all citizens have access to the rights to which they're entitled. So there is, there is work ongoing in government to make sure there aren't any cracks or loopholes that any, any citizen could fall between. Um, but ultimately, all citizens particularly Irish citizens can be reassured that their rights will be protected.
2: So thank
0: you so much everyone for staying on uh, I was really enjoying the conversation um, so just to close if I could just say a couple of things um, I think one of the big themes uh, and I am coming out feeling quite optimistic after this webinar is that there have been huge challenges this year but it's also been at a time that. But innovation in a time where you know, digital systems have really come into their own. So if we can use the kind of double challenge of these tight timelines in the pandemic uh, to develop more robust systems, it's thinking about things like flexibility and alternatives, people who aren't digitally proficient, uh, designing streamlined systems that, that work well even in a pandemic and don't rely on you know paper-based or or in-person meetings, which are really difficult to sustain right now. Um, and I think another really key message is that the politics of all these issues has kind of been one. This is really about the detail. And so there should be enough kind of consensus uh, to really get some of the uh, outstanding issues resolved um, with the time that we have. So thank you so much. All the speakers were really uh, candid and fascinating uh, with your your interventions and responses to questions. Um, As you'll see from your screen, there's just some follow-up here. Um, Any further questions that we didn't get to, you can still email us. Um, The audio will be available later, migrationpolicy.org forward slash events. Please look at Aliyah and Monica's brief, Brexit on the back burner, Citizens' Rights and the Implementation of the Withdrawal Agreement, There are also some other resources there on Brexit. Um, Reporters can contact Michelle and Middlestat at migrationpolicy.org. And there's some other links on your screen right now. So thank you so much, everyone. This has been really great
4: and have a great rest of day.